last session here answering the gay Christian doctrine. Answering gay Christian doctrine, or as I will refer to it, pro-gay theology. I want to give you a brief overview of the pro-gay approach to the Bible and towards the faith itself. Of necessity, it's a brief overview. If you'd like to pursue this more, though, if you will fill out one of those cards that I've got at my table, I'll be sending you actually two things. One is an e-book on pro-gay theology that will get into much more detail than I'm able to get into today. Another is an article on a new I would call strain of gay Christian doctrine called the Revoice Gay Christianity Movement. And that is a movement that does not legitimize homosexuality in that it does not say homosexuality is not a sin, but it's a movement in which people say, if I'm attracted to the same sex, I am a gay Christian, I identify myself as a gay Christian, and through that identification, I find community with other gay Christians. I've written as well on that movement and why I believe it is an unbiblical approach to the issue and how I believe with love and truth we can respond to that. So for more information, please take a minute to fill out that, uh, that coupon there that I've got on my table. If you'll just leave it there, I'll be glad to send you both of those. Of course, they are free of charge. Now let's look at gay Christian doctrine or what I call pro-gay theology and let's start just with defining our terms. What is pro-gay theology? Pro-gay, or we could call it revisionist theology, claims that the biblical references to homosexuality have been mistranslated, misinterpreted, or misunderstood. One of those three. Mistranslated, misinterpreted, or misunderstood. Now, this is an important point. Pro-gay theology basically says, yes, the Bible is the word of God. We don't question that. However, we do believe that the biblical references from Leviticus, Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 1 Timothy have either been mistranslated. We lost something between the original Hebrew and English or the original Greek and English, or they have been misinterpreted. You've misinterpreted what those scriptures say, or they have been misunderstood. You're not quite getting what Moses and Paul had in mind. So revisionist theology teaches that the Bible verses we normally look at and say those verses condemn homosexuality, those verses, the pro-gay or the revisionist theologian says, have been mistranslated, or they are being misinterpreted, or they are being misunderstood. Now, this brings up the critical question. Are we practicing exegesis or eisegesis? When we practice eisegesis, we impose our desired meaning onto the document. I want the document to say something, therefore I will look for a way to make it say that. I impose the meaning on the document. When I practice exegesis, I derive the meaning from the document. Regardless of what I want, what does that document say? And you know very well that we are perfectly capable of imposing a meaning onto something which is very plain if it suits our own agenda. If you raised kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about, usually by the time they're teens. I could tell, and again, I got the best sons a man could ask for, but I can remember during the teen years telling a son, one of my two, okay, I would like you to take the trash out by the time I get home. 
I know you're watching TV, but by the time I'm back, please have the trash out. Okay, Dad. I get home. The trash is still sitting there. Son, what did I say? Oh, Dad, you said that if I have time. <laughs> and energy. And desire. When I get around to it. Would I consider taking the trash out? No, that is what you wanted me to say. That is what you hoped I said, but that ain't what I said. That's eisegesis, classic eisegesis. Well, with that difference in mind, what I want to look at are the five key scriptures referencing homosexuality. I want to look at the pro-gay interpretation of each of those, and I want to offer a response to that interpretation. I am aware that any discussion of homosexuality could include the destruction of Sodom, it could include other references indirect or direct to homosexual behavior, but I want to look especially at the prohibitions and how pro-gay revisionists revise our understanding of those. Again, if you want a history of the gay rights movement and a history of the pro-gay religious movement, if you'll fill out that card, I can send you material that is much more exhaustive than this. Let's begin then with Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. Um, let's lump these two together, okay? Leviticus 18.22 is a prohibition. Thou shalt not lie with a man as with a woman. It's an abomination. 20.13 is a penalty. If a man lies with a man as with a woman, they have committed an abomination. Okay, Leviticus is largely about separation, Right? God calls his people Israel out of Egypt, and he says, you are going to be, very important, a separated people unto me. You're going to be surrounded by nations that practice things that are forbidden to you. I am not calling you to be like them. In fact, I am calling you to be unlike them. You shall be my peculiar people. And that separation is spelled out throughout Leviticus, and it applies to their civil relationships, their family relationships, their business relationships, in these two chapters, 18 and 20, it largely is applicable to their sexual relationships. There is a reason for this. Everything prohibited in Leviticus was widely practiced at the time. Incest, prostitution, bestiality, homosexuality, adultery, all of them widely practiced by the surrounding nations. So God is saying to his people, you will not emulate them in your behavior. Whether or not you feel drawn to this behavior, it is the behavior of the ungodly. It is not the behavior of the godly. Thereby, these chapters both contain specific prohibitions against incest in any form, adultery, prostitution, bestiality, and homosexuality. Seems to be pretty clear, but the revisionist would claim, hey, wait a minute, you're picking and choosing. Because after all, there's a lot of other stuff in Leviticus, a lot of other prohibitions that you don't pay any attention to. There are prohibitions against certain types of shellfish. You can't eat them. Prohibitions against wearing certain types of clothing. Prohibitions against mixing the wrong types of grain or fire together when you're worshiping. So how is it that you people take some of these prohibitions seriously and some of them you don't take seriously? Now, a couple of points about the Old Testament law we should consider before we take that argument any further. The Old Testament law is good. The law of Moses is good. Jesus said himself, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. 
Paul said of the law, the law is good, the law is holy. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's everything wrong with me. The harder I try to keep the law, the more I realize I can't, a wretched man that I am. And that, of course, he said, is the schoolmaster, as he wrote to the Galatians, which leads us to faith in Christ. Evident in the law is the difference, though, between what is ceremonial, dietary, or morally universal. And there is a difference between the three. Ceremonial and dietary laws, the New Testament itself says, are no longer binding to the believer. We didn't make that up. We're not picking and choosing. We are taking all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament, specifically including the book of Romans and the book of Galatians and the book of Hebrews, which specify that dietary and ceremonial laws from the book of Moses are no longer binding on the believer. Now, the authors of the New Testament, the author of Hebrews and Paul, author of Romans and Galatians, were not telling us you absolutely must not keep the law when it comes to dietary and ceremonial matters. But what he is saying is that you do not have to keep those laws in order to be living a righteous life. And certainly the author of Hebrews says you cannot nor should not keep laws regarding animal sacrifices because that negates the fact that one blood sacrifice has been made, which is eternal and valid for all time. So prohibitions here, though, are repeated throughout Scripture. That is why these are morally universal laws. Now, again, if you think about it, that distinction is pretty easy to see. Look through Leviticus, look through Deuteronomy. You'll see laws that are clearly dietary and laws that are clearly ceremonial, having nothing to do with sexual behavior. But look again at the laws governing sexual behavior in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Laws against incest, laws against adultery, laws against prostitution, and laws against homosexuality. And what do you see in the New Testament? They're reiterated. Why? Because they are universal moral laws, not laws that are limited to Israel at the time the law of Moses was given. Thereby, for example, you've got, oh, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and in Exodus as well, you've got the law commanding you to love God, love your neighbor. I don't hear even the most liberal theologians saying, oh, that's not applicable today. That's in the law of Moses. No, why? Because that's a universal principle. Reiterated in the New Testament, you know, which leads to an interesting point, And that's response number two. The practices described in these chapters, Leviticus 18 and 20, according to God himself, according to Leviticus 19, 27, those practices defiled the land. Now, pause button, okay? God is saying these behaviors, prostitution, bestiality, homosexuality, incest, licentiousness outside of marriage, these behaviors are not just dietary or ceremonially wrong. They literally pollute the environment. That's how God sees it. That's obviously not then a prohibition limited to Israel that has universal application. Which leads to a clear point, response three, some commandments are contained in the Old Testament law, but other commandments transcend the Old Testament law. That is to say, there are some commandments simply contained within the law that do not transcend it. The commandment not to wear certain fabrics together, that is only contained within the law, it doesn't transcend the law. The command to love God, to not murder, to not commit adultery, to love your neighbor, to abstain from sexual sins forbidden in the Old and New Testament, those commandments transcend the Old Testament law. Similar to a point I made yesterday, I will reiterate it. There are laws that are applicable to a state, and there are laws that are federal in nature. 
So, for example, in the state of California, we got some laws you don't have. Trust me, we have some laws you don't have, okay? <laughs> Enough said. If you break those laws, who cares? Why? Because it's got nothing to do with you. It doesn't apply to you. It does apply to me as a California resident. There are federal laws that apply to all of us. I think you see the distinction. Now, let me then move on to a common revisionist claim, which doesn't have to do with a prohibition, but it's important. And that is the claim that Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. Therefore, he must have been okay with it. Now, the statement is based on the assumption that during his earthly ministry, Jesus never mentioned this topic. Is that true? I have no idea. Why do I have no idea? Well, because my first response, according to John chapter 21, verse 25, all the books that had ever been written at that time could not contain everything Jesus said and did. Now, it is true that in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have no record of Jesus discussing homosexuality. Does that mean he didn't discuss it? No. Why? Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't even pretend to provide an exhaustive account of everything Jesus ever said or did. So for that reason, I cannot with integrity say, I am sure Jesus spoke against homosexuality, nor can the revisionists say, I am sure Jesus didn't speak against homosexuality. We simply don't know. So does that end the argument there? No, of course not. Because there are plenty of other things Jesus said nothing about. In the Gospels, we have no record of him mentioning bestiality. We have no record of him mentioning incest. We have no record of him specifically mentioning spousal abuse. Now, is anybody going to even try to argue that he would legitimize any of those behaviors because in the Gospels he did not specifically condemn them? Of course not. Those behaviors violate so much of the principle of what he taught, not to mention the fact he was addressing groups, by and large, that already believed in the standard Jewish beliefs about marriage and sexuality. It would have been redundant to condemn behaviors that they already knew to be wrong. However, Jesus did, response three, reaffirm the heterosexual nature of marriage. Very important. He reaffirmed the heterosexual nature of marriage. Matthew 19, 4 to 5, he made quite a statement. Know you not that he who created them created them male and female. For this cause, a man will leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two will become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no one set asunder. What did he just say? Here's the standard for the human sexual union and experience. It is meant to be independent. A man will leave his father and mother. It is meant to be monogamous. He will cleave to his wife. It's meant to be permanent. What God has joined together, let no one set asunder. And it is meant to be heterosexual. Know you not, he created them male and female. Anything short of that is short of what God intended. And that being the case, it is not necessary to name every possible behavior that would fall short of that. So, for example, if the freeway sign says the limit is 65 miles per hour, okay, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Does anybody need to tell you that anything over 65 miles per hour will constitute speeding? Of course not. Why? Because the sign says this is the standard, 65 miles an hour. There is no need for another sign to pop up two miles later saying, by the way, don't go 73 miles an hour, and another one saying, don't go 89 miles an hour. Now, if I was speeding on the freeway and a cop pulls me over and says, do you know you were speeding, you were doing 89 miles an hour? Imagine if I said, well, officer, 
There is no sign here telling me I can't do 89 miles an hour. Well, that's true, there's not. But the guy would say, are you kidding me, buddy? There is a sign that says 65 miles per hour is the speed limit. Go above that and you're speeding. That constitutes speeding. Jesus said this constitutes God's intention for the marital relationship. Anything apart from that is by nature sin, just as surely as 89 miles per hour is by nature speeding. Now that leads us to the New Testament. Let's look briefly at Paul's writings on homosexuality in Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 1 Timothy. Romans, Paul cites homosexuality as symptomatic of fallen human nature. Romans 1, 26 to 27, he describes uh, both male and female homosexuality, saying God gave reprobate people up to vile affections. The women changed the natural use into that which is against nature, as did the men burning in lust for one another, receiving in themselves due compensation. Now, I mentioned before, Romans is a brilliant legal argument. Paul is not interested in going off on a tirade against homosexual people, but he is drawing clear parallels between the current times and the book of Genesis, isn't he? Because at the beginning of Romans, he says that what has been created has rejected the creator and is now worshiping itself. And as a result, one of the most basic foundational of all human relationships, the sexual union between man and woman, even that has been turned on its head, and then there are a number of other sins, he says, are flowing as a result of the creation turning its back on the creator. Uh, in contrast to Genesis, where the creator creates the creation, and creation is subject to the creator, and within that flow of order comes the heterosexual union which God ordained when he said, I have created male, I have created female, I have created you in my own image, and this is good. Paul says it's not good anymore. It's been turned on its head. Clearly, then, he is saying that homosexuality, very important point, represents what is unnatural because it is not what the creator intended. Does that mean it is always verifiably damaging to another person? We cannot with integrity say, I can always prove that a homosexual or lesbian relationship is causing physical harm to other people or is causing in and of itself some disruption to social order. We can argue about the impact of sexual sin in general, and I believe it does have a corrosive and direct effect on the environment and on the culture, but I'm not going to be one to say that anybody who is committing that act is guilty of doing severe harm to the other person outside of this, which is in fact very significant harm, they are operating in a way God never intended. Now this is where it gets interesting. As opposed to sins like rape, murder, robbery, assault, the damage is verifiable, it's right there. People living together before marriage or people engaging in homosexuality, can you show with the same verifiable fact that damage like this is being done? No, although you cannot ignore what statistics tell us about the population of people engaged in these behaviors who have a higher rate of suicidality, depression, alcoholism, chemical dependency, and domestic abuse, which tells you something. But even apart from that, the issue to me is not proving the verifiable damage of something outside God's will. The argument ends when you recognize that it is outside God's will, which gets us back to a point I was trying to make when we began this morning. 
all things were created for God's pleasure. Whatever is not then being done according to God's pleasure is outside of God's order and will, in fact, introduce catastrophe in the end, if not in this life, in the next, for everyone involved. And in that sense, yes, harm is absolutely being done. So Paul is saying here, this is unnatural, this is contrary to what the Creator intended. Now, what the revisionists will often claim is, well, Paul's not talking about homosexuals. He's talking about heterosexual men who, exper who experimented with homosexuality, as some heterosexual men have done. And so he was basically saying the problem was these guys, these women, were doing what was not natural to them. And I hope you hear the dangerous implication in that argument. The argument says, in essence, it is a sin to do what is not natural to you. The sin of Romans 1 was that these people were doing what was not natural to them. Well, good heavens. I could tell you a lot of things that are still natural to me that could be very destructive. So if I'm going to take that as a guide, we are going to have anarchy. We're going to have chaos. And it's going to be just as the Old Testament records, there was confusion because every man did what was right in his own eyes. Besides all of which... Paul did not say that these were heterosexual men engaging in homosexuality. He said these guys burned in lust for each other. Now, do heterosexual men or heterosexual women ever engage in a homosexual act? Some do for different reasons. Prison life, drunken experimentation, who knows what. They are not burning in lust for each other. They're not attracted to each other. It's an, out, uh, an outlet of some sort or it's a power play or who knows what. But heterosexual men are not burning in lust for each other because they are heterosexual men. So therefore, no, these could not have been heterosexuals. They were homosexuals. More important is response to. One of my biggest beefs with pro-gay theology is it imposes a contingency. When God says thou shalt not, pro-gay theology says God says thou shalt not unless. Well, that's a contingency. And it's not there in the document. That is eisegesis. I impose a contingency on it. I give myself then a pass for doing something because I'm going to find a way to say, God forbids that for others, but not for me. No contingencies exist in this chapter. Homosexual behavior is viewed as sinful no matter what the context is. This is why, for example, I've never been one to argue homosexuality is wrong because all gay men are promiscuous. And so many of them are pedophiles, which is not true. And so many of them are communists, which is not true. And they're all basically disease-carrying, unclean devils. Well, of course that is not true. And not all of them are promiscuous. And the reason I avoid that argument, first, it's not true, and it's very unfair to gay people. Secondly, I avoid it because it implies that homosexuality is wrong because of the way it's being practiced, which implies that it could be right if it was practiced in a different way, which is not true. Homosexuality is condemned biblically whether it occurs in the context of multiple sexual partners or within the context of a monogamous homosexual relationship which lasts 50 years. It is still just as wrong. Now, just by way of analogy, I'm an old movie fan. My wife and I love Turner Classic movies. I love Spencer Tracy movies. And as you probably know, he had a long-standing relationship with the actress Catherine Hepburn. Spencer Tracy was a married man. And he wasn't married to Katherine Hepburn. 
Yet their relationship is often extolled as one of Hollywood's greatest romances. They were together for decades, and by all accounts, they loved each other very much. They loved each other, and the relationship was adulterous. Both are equally true. So I don't need to say they didn't love each other in order to acknowledge the fact that that relationship was wrong. No matter how deeply they felt about each other, the love is not a contingency you can impose on the prohibition against adultery. It's just as adulterous if it was a one-night stand or a decades-long relationship. The same is true here. No contingencies exist here. Which leads finally to a Greek term, arsenikoite, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, and 1 Timothy 1, 9, and 10. Paul uses the same word when he references homosexuality, arsenikoite. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, he says that homosexuality is one of many behaviors that will exclude people from inheriting the kingdom of God. In 1 Timothy 1, 9, and 10, Paul lists homosexuality as one of the behaviors that the law is made to condemn. Now, I still happen to prefer the King James Version of the Bible, not because I believe it's superior, but because for me it's familiar, so that's where I am. Um, but uh, my version says those who defile themselves with mankind, your version may say homosexual offenders or uh, sodomites or something similar. But the Greek word he uses there is arsenikoite. Arsenikoite. Now, arsenikoite is a Greek term which did not exist until Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1. At the time he wrote to the church of Corinth and to Timothy, there were other Greek words already available that he could have used for the word homosexual. The terms for homosexuals generally were terms used to describe a certain way a homosexual would forgive the immodesty, would have sexual relations with another man, either a dominant or a passive partner in the homosexual act. Paul bypassed all of that, I believe, because he wanted to say the act is wrong no matter how it is done. An erotic relationship between men is wrong in and of itself. It is secondary how that relationship is played out. So he coined the phrase arsenikoite. Now, the revisionists would say, well, that Greek word he used, arsenikoite, is ambiguous, probably didn't even refer to homosexuality. So since we can't know whether or not it referred to homosexuality, Paul did not condemn homosexuality in these passages. Now, again, side note, it's kind of elitist to do this, but people do it frequently. They go back to original language and say, well, I've studied original Greek and you haven't. Therefore, I know something you don't know, and I know something you're not capable of knowing. So I'm going to throw out the original Greek word, and I'm going to talk over your head by saying, well, Paul used a Greek word, and we cannot know what the meaning of it was. Thereby, the case is closed. The argument is finished. Because that implies that you yourself are not able to check this out yourself. Well, of course you can. You get a Strong's Concordance or a Thayer's Greek lexicon, and you can check this out yourself. And what you will find is, response one, the term arsenikoite is a compound term, arsane, which means male, and koite, which means couch or bed. The word arsane means male with an emphasis on male, as opposed to anthropos, which means men uh, who are human and happen to be male. Just for example, uh, most of the time in the New Testament you see the word men, the Greek word used is anthropos. People who happen to be male. The emphasis is on their personhood, secondary emphasis on their maleness. Occasionally, the word arsane is used, like Mary brought forth an arsane, a male child, emphasis on male. 
So arsane meaning male, which by the way is the term Paul used in Romans 1 when he said even the males, the arsane, burned in lust for each other. Then koite means couch or bed with a sexual connotation. You find it twice in the New Testament. Romans 13, 13, Paul said, let us not walk in chambering, koite, sleeping around. And then Hebrews 13, 4, in a more positive sense, marriage is honorable in all things, and the koite, the marriage bed, is undefiled. Paul put together words meaning males and bed with a sexual connotation. The meaning to that, I would say, is very clear. What makes the meaning crystal clear lies in response number two. Arsenicoite is a compound term derived directly from the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint was widely in use when Paul wrote to Corinth and to Timothy. And in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew prohibitions against homosexuality, as I hope you can see in your notes, included the terms arsenos and koiten. Arsenos and koiten meaning plainly he was using a term that would be familiar to those who were familiar with the Septuagint, and that being the case, they would understand what he meant when he combined the terms arsene and koite, because those terms were used in the Greek translation of Hebrew prohibitions against homosexuality. The case, I believe, is crystal clear. It becomes even clearer when you consider this. In both the Old and the New Testament, you will not find one positive example of a homosexual person. In both the Old and the New Testament, you will not find one reference to homosexuality, which is not negative. In both the Old and the New Testament, you will find no instruction whatsoever for lesbian couples or gay male couples. None. Now, if God, in fact, knew there would be gay people, and he did... And if God loves lesbian and gay people, which he does, God would surely have inspired the authors of Scripture to include some instruction for lesbian and gay couples, but the instruction is not there, and that silence is deafening. Thereby, how does anybody come to believe revisionist theology? I believe it's summed up in a statement that Dr. Uh, Paul Morris made talking about homosexuality when he said, but if I were a Christian homosexual, this one question would disturb me. And I, am I interpreting the scripture in the light of my proclivity or should I be interpreting my proclivity in the light of scripture? It is a human common error to interpret scripture in light of what you want it to say. It is an error being aggravated today because of the times we are in. Let's close on this, which is not a happy thought, but there is a hopeful thought attached to it. This is a time of immeasurable deception. My wife and I have often talked about the fact that much of what we see today brazenly on display was always there, but is now manifest in ways that has never been before. The violence, the unreasonableness, the immorality, the uncleanness, the lewdness, it's always been there, but never in such blatant display. Which tells me, on the one hand, God is allowing it to be manifest, and on the other hand, it tells me that, unfortunately, the influence of the church and the culture is getting progressively weaker in many ways, and as a result, there is less of a restraining force, and so we have a manifestation of all kinds of darkness today. 
And that is bad news. Then there is good news. If I'm on a trip somewhere and I've got directions that say right before you get to the destination, you're going to hit a lot of rocks, you're going to hit a lot of bad weather, and the roads are going to get rough, and then you're going to be where you want to be. Then if I read those instructions when I got to areas that were very rocky and that had very inclement weather, and then the roads were very rough, I would think, I don't like this, but hey, hallelujah, I am near the end. Which is exactly why Jesus said, when you see these things, look up. Your redemption is drawing near. And that tells me the window is closing, and you and I have the chance to take one last stand. One last stand is the stand that we take when we are more than ever committed to the basics of the faith. The manifestation of darkness around us tells us more than ever of our need to be both living in the light and proclaiming the light. And we do that with a great hope. We are grieved at a lot of what we see. And then we are reminded that the love of Christ constrains us. Well, then for heaven's sake, let's not sit on that. What we are feeling, I believe, is the restlessness, a prophetic restlessness the church is experiencing by which it is saying we are not necessarily afraid of the evil around us but we are grieved over the evil around us and we long as Christ longed when he wept over Jerusalem for the people caught up in this evil to be redeemed and out of that restlessness we will take risks we wouldn't have taken before, and we will go out on limbs we wouldn't have gone out before because we are realizing more than ever, good grief, this is it. We have a life and death message. It is a message we must first know. More than ever, we have got to be students of the Word. The Word and the biblical discernment that comes from knowing the Word is like the immune system. If your immune system is broken down, you are subject to a lot of diseases you wouldn't otherwise be subject to. If your immune system is intact, you will ward off a lot of the diseases that are affecting people who do not have good immune systems. So it is with biblical discernment. If we are students of the Word of God, we will be able to discern what is biblical and what is not. So, for example, I have read and reread and reread Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities because I love it more than any other work of fiction. I am not an expert on Charles Dickens, but I know that book, and I know the characters in the book. And so I know, for example, that Madame Defarge used to enjoy knitting while she watched the aristocrats get their heads chopped off. So if you tell me, oh, in Tale of Two Cities, Madame Defarge established a daycare center for the children of aristocrats, I would say, no, I've read the book, and I know that what you're telling me is contrary to everything Dickens said about that lady. So it is with biblical discernment. If we know the word of God, we will have the ability to discern what is or is not biblical, and thereby we will not be subject to the errors and the heresies that are going through so many quarters of the body of Christ. When the church's immune system is broken down through biblical illiteracy, she is subject to diseases. When the immune system is intact, she is more robust and vital. And oh, how the world needs a church that is robust and vital. With that in mind, then, I believe our desire to better understand this issue is birthed primarily out of a broader desire to be biblically literate, doctrinally astute, 
spiritually vibrant because the times are calling us to that sense of what I believe is prophetic urgency. We're not just the church attempting to preach the gospel and make disciples, although we are that. But we are also, and I hope we can take this to heart, we are the wisdom that Proverbs spoke about, crying out in the streets, saying, how long, you simple ones, will you love your simplicity? There is a better way. Turn at this reproof while there is time. That is our one last stand. It is evangelistic, it is disciple-oriented, and it is prophetic. And by the grace of God, I think we will rise to take it. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word and your spirit. Where would we be without both? We are praying now that you make us even better stewards of your word and that more than ever you will empower us by your spirit. We pray for the people we love who are gay, lesbian, or transgender. We pray for them. Do the work in them that only you can do and draw them into truth and draw them to you. Use us to draw these people you love to you and to truth. We pray that you correct us where we need correction, in our attitude or in our behavior. If there is secret, unconfessed uncleanness in our lives, we bring that before you. And we say, Lord, have mercy on us. Cleanse us and deliver us from the power of that. And we pray if there is pride or arrogance in us or bitterness or unforgiveness towards these people, we pray, forgive us for that sin. And we pray that with pure heart that is given to us by you, you will equip us with all that we need as the body of Christ to respond to the people who you died for. Give us your love for them. Give us your boldness. Make us faithful stewards of your truth. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you for hanging in there with me. It is an honor talking with you. Thank you very much.